welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, off to the races, Jenna. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure. Thanks for thanks for being here. So we connected via one of the podcast platforms and I was uh, interested in your, your profile and your story because you kind of center in your description about yourself, you know, being a, a female entrepreneur and being a creative and kind of the, the challenges associated with both of those things, both making a career out of a creative trade and also, you know, running your own business as a woman. So just wanted to bring you on and chat and kind of see what lessons or insights there could be for, for my audience, you know, both men and women, maybe things they hadn't considered. So, um, how did you, you know, photography is, is one of your main businesses. So, you know, what was your path to that, that work as a, as a starting point? Um, to be honest, as I went through college and all my life goals leading up to that, I it had honestly never occurred to me to be a photographer. It was something I had always done for fun, but I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I got into college and I started putting in my hours um, to get into vet school and I realized it just wasn't for me. So then I had this existential crisis of like, oh, what do I do now? And um, I just kind of on a whim saw if anyone or started asking if anyone wanted to hire me as an assistant photo assistant or second shooter. And some brave soul said yes. And uh, that was like 15, <laughs> yeah. 16 years ago. And it just, I, it stuck, you know, nice. it was a something I already enjoyed doing and I'm very lucky to uh, make a living at it. Sick. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, what percentage or how, how many, if you were to guess, like let's say in the U S how many active full-time professional photographers are there? Well, you know, what's the the market size that can support, you know, full-time people? Oh, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, I think there's like a billion photographers, you know, cause it's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. When I started, they had like just released digital SLR cameras. That's how old I am. So when I started, it was like there was just a handful of companies that housed multiple photographers, and that was more typical. And now everyone's kind of doing what I did, which is turning their hobby into a living. Um, whether or not they're doing it full time is not really something they're going to advertise on their social media or their website. My experience talking with colleagues is that a lot of them at least have a part-time job, even if it's just like a work from home type situation. Um, And it's a pretty big leap to go full-time. So I would think, I would think I imagine extremely competitive. It's extremely competitive. And I would, I don't know for sure, but I would assume the percentage of people who are full-time is smaller. For sure. Sorry. Sorry. I interrupted you there. But yeah, my, uh, my roommate is a videographer and he shoots weddings as, as do you. And he and I have talked about how working a job that started as a passion or is still a passion can kind of blur the line between enjoyment and, you know, still loving the thing. 
know, maybe how like professional athletes feel sometimes too. So for you, how do you, how do you balance that? I mean, do you, and also a different question is, do you consider yourself a creative person in general, not just in the context of your, of your photography, but overall? Yes, I definitely am a creative person in general. I can do a lot of, it's funny. It's like, I can kind of pick up a lot of disciplines and just kind of be good at them right out the gate, oh, cool. which sounds arrogant, but I definitely can't like do math to, or like sports to save my life. But I have noticed that, you know, like if I decide I want to draw, I can draw. If I decide I want to paint, I can paint. If I decide I want to play an instrument, I can do that. So I definitely do just like naturally have a creative mind. Um, going into it as a business is a balance and to say that it is 50 50 balanced all the time would definitely not be true. There are some times when you're feeling super, super creative and you just like, don't feel like doing the bookkeeping, you know? And then there's times where you're just like an autopilot and you're doing stuff that you know works and you don't feel super inspired. And sometimes that period will go on for like a year, you know, you have to really like, check back in and do things to keep you uh, re-inspired. Um, the side of your brain that, that does business and the side of your brain that does creativity are kind of antagonistic in some ways. Mm. So to balance it both is, is definitely a challenge and being in a creative career, you know, it wasn't really put upon our parents, but it is put upon this generation to like, follow your passion and have your job be your identity and be your sense of fulfillment. But the problem with that is then when you come on a hard time with your job, now your identity is also coming on a hard time. So um, it is a delicate balance that you have to really be intentional about. For sure. Yeah. It's really interesting, especially with having your job be a creative passion because, you know, even to say I work in sales and I love conversation, obviously. So it's aligned, but it's not like my biggest thing that if I could do for fun or make a job out of, you know, more like something like this, like a podcast style would be a, probably a more honest expression of what I would love to do full time. But I can imagine when it is that thing for you, like one of those really creative outlets. And then now there's the pressure, the ups and downs, you know, it, it gets tied in and, and maybe even also the people that know you, they see you as, the photographer potentially. And what about times when you don't love photography right now and your friends, it might like break their brains, you know, they might not know how to handle that perhaps. Oh, that doesn't break my friend's brains at all. We're all kind of creative <laughs> entrepreneurs. Cool. Um, and we all know what it is to get creative burnout. Mm. I personally don't think I need to have a camera in my hand. It'll, I'm not, I feel like I do it for work so much that when I need to like creatively reset, I'll do one of the other creative activities. I like, like I'll sit down for eight hours and draw something really detailed or I'll, you know, uh, I have this, this niche hobby called needle felting that I won't even get into it. It's like a fiber art and that's really time consuming. And I've noticed that exercising the creative part of my brain, not even directly through photography does actually benefit, benefit my photography because it just gets like, that side of my brain going, but yeah, no, all my friends, they get it. <laughs> nice. So, so when you were like a kid growing up, did you just have notebooks full of drawings and like piles and piles of, of creative things your whole life? 
Yeah, it's funny. My mom recently gave me all my like baby book and like big box of kids stuff to me, which I thought was kind of rude. I was like, wait, you're not going through this in your free time. Um, (laughs) I, I got it and I actually looked through it and I didn't realize how long I'd been creative until I looked through it. Mm -hmm. Like even, um, there was like a doctor's note from when I went in for my like three-year-old checkup and they have you draw a person just to see like what your spatial awareness is. And the person I drew had like jewelry and a purse and hair which is like very unusual for that age um so yeah i drew nine thousand orcas i was real (laughs) obsessed with orcas i drew so many versions of the lion king like so much stuff Uh, i have a lot (laughs) that's so dope did you do like uh on pride rock that scene i think the one i drew repeatedly was like mufasa roaring like Sick. I think it's like it was like something out of a coloring book, but I was practicing like, can I draw this without tracing it? And I could, but then I, then I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it eight million times then, <laughs> just do it over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> That's awesome. I I had a I had a gigantic like maybe twenty by thirty poster of a roaring lion at one point. I fucking love lions. I think they're so nice. cool. <laughs> You should, you should have it up right now. I know. I know. Where, right where is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's sick. So your, 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 one of your main lines of business is wedding photography. And when we were preparing to have the conversation, you mentioned that <laughs> there are a lot of really interesting social norms that get brought up or, or rather violated um, in the context of a wedding. So I'm, just to the age where my friends are starting to get married. Um, and my, my girlfriend actually last summer, she had a bunch of weddings. Like she had like three or four where she was involved and the whole like bridezilla, you know, experience is something that was new to me to hear about all the stress and all the tension and, you know, parents being super hands on and, you know, it was, it was all foreign to me. So, uh, it was really interesting to hear about your experiences and kind of seeing that firsthand. So, you know, what, what is your perspective as a, as an opening question on the whole wedding industry and the wedding uh, charade, if we can call it that after being in the, in the mix for so long? I mean, I wouldn't describe it as a charade. I think there is an element to it that can become very, consumerism and can become very social signaling and um, trying to be on trend and that sort of thing. There is that element to it. Um, But also even with that, I mean, some people who are not creative throwing a wedding is like the only creative thing they're going to do in their life. So I get them really going after it. Um, I think, I think wedding, I think marriage is a beautiful tradition, especially when entered into, you know, from the right mindset and um, yeah, weddings can be crazy. And there are, I don't get a lot of bridezillas often. I get one every now and then, but I feel like I bet my clients so well Mm -hmm. that it's uncommon. Um, If someone's going to be super inappropriate, it's probably going to be the mother of the bride. If I'm being honest, it's <laughs> like wanting her daughter's day to be perfect and like, you know, being a little overbearing and overly emotional. Like that it's, it's rarely the bride. <laughs> okay. For sure. Yeah. Charade is a, is a harsh word. I'll, I'll retract that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so how many weddings have you shot if you were to estimate? Oh God, I don't know. I mean, there are some years where I shot like 45 weddings. Oh my God. I just doing that for like a while. And then I was just like, that is killing my body. Um, so I, I can't do that anymore, but hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. I've been doing it for so long. Nice. And in the, the context of actually before I jump to the like lessons for men around <laughs> faux pas, the, so the element of like the true, true love, right? That's what's the thing about weddings. That I feel like people love. We love is that, it's two people who've made a commitment and they want to make it forever. So when you are trying to capture that moment and capture that essence of true love, how do you, how do you, how do you stage that? Or how do you um, communicate what the couple needs to do for you to do your best work and capture the moment? Oh, um, well, it depends. So there's like engagement shoots where I have more time and I can give them kind of a little homework to do and give them more coaching. Um, On a wedding day, we're on a little bit tighter of a schedule. So when it comes to those couples photos, I think, you know, I've been doing it for so long that I really know how to get people to relax um, while in flattering places and positions, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but I think the most important thing is to not be overbearing, you know, like there's a lot of photos where people will stage it to make it look like a romance novel. And it's like, well, you don't <laughs> have to do that because they are in love and this is romantic, you know? So instead of letting it, making it super forced, instead kind of letting what's already there happen and just kind of tweak it a little bit so that it's a little bit more camera friendly, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um I, that's the secret, secret, not secret to my shooting style. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Maybe some, uh, some good nuggets for people out there who are gonna, you know, shoot their own weddings or, you know, ha- be in, be in them. So the, the element of like tying with the theme of the Bronova podcast is I'm always looking for voices and experiences to help inform men who, to avoid, you know, social mistakes or to avoid hurting other people's feelings, for example, or just being rude. Um, and I, and you had mentioned some interesting examples uh, in the context of a wedding of how you are treated as the lead shooter as a woman and some of the th- things that can happen, you know, whether it's w- comments from the, you know, the groomsmen or how, you know, you're treated. So uh, what, what would be some high level takeaways for men uh, as far as uh, how not to behave in that, in that setting. Well, I mean, definitely don't hit on the photographer. Rule number one. <laughs> um, <laughs> rule number two, don't uh, make sexually inappropriate jokes at the photographer. Don't try to undermine the photographer and think it's hilarious. You know, that's that happens with groomsmen parties that have been drinking, you know, trying to like kind of emotionally knock me off my footing and see if I'll recover. Um, there's a lot of, there's, so there's people that there's men that want to come up to you and they want to talk to you about your craft. And sometimes it's like the father, the bride, and he just wants to like get to know you a little bit. And he's using the fact that he used to like photography as like a common ground to just start a conversation with you. That's fine. Cause energetically, that's just someone being nice and wanting to be welcoming and treat you like a human. Then there's a much larger, unfortunately much larger category (laughs) of um, 
men at weddings that are coming up to you to kind of like mansplain your job to you. And these are people who have had photography as a hobby like 20 years ago or, you know, do it every now, like shoot birds every now and then now and don't really know, have a working knowledge of how to do your job, but do want to come up to you and act like they do or try to give you like a hot take or a hot tip, you know, and that's um, condescending and distracting and um, puts you in a position where, you know, you want to clap back at that person and be like, actually, I'll tell you how to do my job and not the other way around, you know, but um, you're in a situation where you have to be very polite and you have to be, um, keep the energy high and the spirit of celebration. So you're just in this really delicate position of how to tell that person to stop doing that or that you're not interested in their advice without being overtly off-putting. Yeah, that's kind of reminds me of the decision-making that I've heard from a lot of women in my life around when to, when is it worth it to make a comment or to clap back at someone? And I think that's something interesting too, that many men maybe don't realize is like, say for example, uh, a man is hitting on a woman and it's unwanted. The woman has to make a, depending on the situation, a a calculation of, okay, like how is this guy going to respond if I tell him how I really feel? You know, am I going to be in danger? Is this going to be a bad situation? That's exactly what I was going to say. It's it's different when a man is rejecting an unwanted advance. There isn't an element of fear for his safety, you know? Um, I guess, like, if you were a man, imagine a homosexual man who was, like, had 80-plus pounds and, like, seven inches on you came up and hit on you and you couldn't make them go away. And they had every ability to overpower you, especially if you're in a private situation. I mean, I think that men would understand what consent is real quick in that situation, but they don't understand it as much when they're dealing with women. So yeah, when I, I mean, I don't get hit on that aggressively when I'm working, it's pretty easy to be like, brush that aside and move on. But outside of the context of work, yeah, it's scary when you have to, calculate you know your safety versus not making a scene socially versus saying what you want to say which is you're being rude and leave me alone you know 100 percent. and that was something that i learned like as an adult basically i remember i remember like in like high school relationships kind of uh hearing about secondhand like stories with like, Oh, my, my girlfriend that was being hit on and me saying things like, why, why didn't you just tell him to go away or, you know, yada, yada. And looking back, realizing, Oh wait, like it's obvious to me now, but I think it's an important thing for men to, to consider. And that also gets into things to be considered of in the workplace too, you know, like personal space. <laughs> Like this is not, this is not complicated, but it's something that isn't, isn't always respected in a professional setting. Yeah. I mean, I'm a pretty outspoken person, so I feel like I can like shut it down in a, in a witty way pretty quick, but it is annoying to even have to. And there's, there's other challenges, you know, um, like for example, when I'm at weddings, I, a lot of people hire second shooters 
And I specifically don't like working with male second shooters, not because of anything having to do with their talent or what it's like to work with them, but that when I show up with a male second shooter, all the men in the room assume he's the lead shooter and they'll be deferential to him. Even, even after I've told them he's not, they seem to be more deferential. And I like, for example, one time I had a male second shooter with me. He's great talented. wasn't doing anything to undermine me in any way. Um, and the father of the groom just like yelled at every female vendor at this wedding more than once. He's very aggressive towards all the women. And he was like hugging my second shooter. He was like hugging him, patting him on the back, telling him the photos were going to be amazing. And that's not an isolated incident. So it's to a point where I don't really hire male second shooters anymore because I, you know, 50% of the people there being men will not treat me with the respect if I, as the same respect as if I were to bring like a, another woman, you know? Totally. That sounds very frustrating and is wildly disrespectful. What do you think is the root cause of that? And there are a few examples and this kind of all ties in. It's like the groomsmen trying to be funny for their friends and, you know, try to uh, make you off your game or the example of the mansplaining man about how to shoot or the father of the bride who (laughs) has a wildly different, you know, words and, and actions for men and women. Like, what do you think is behind that? Uh, patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I could talk about it for a really long time, but I mean, everything about the way men have been raised since the dawn of time, you know, like is, Mm -hmm. is the, the full answer. But I mean, our culture is only very recently starting to shift away from, you know, belittling women and strong gender roles, but not really even, I mean, it's like a legal the the extent to which women are getting legislated against to this day. And like, for example, in Texas, it's really not changing in the, you know, enormous way it really needs to. And even with very good men, you know, very sweet men, it's, it's subconscious, you know, sometimes their dads, you know, are raised them to be, they want their men to be men and they don't understand what they are doing. That's disrespectful. But if that's the case, when someone then tells you you're being disrespectful, that's new information to you. Adjust, you know, don't just keep going on with that behavior. Totally. Totally. It's, it's having the, you know, the lack of ego to just say I was wrong. And I think that's another thing that men have been conditioned to never, ever do is say I'm wrong. And it's, Oh yeah. You know, and it's even embodied in like the, that's not male exclusive for sure. I mean, I, women do that too. And I definitely have that problem every now and then, but it is, like, <laughs> does seem to be a pattern that they're not. It's, it's, I think being wrong is being equated with weakness and men are very conditioned to never come off as weak. If that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I think it's interesting. The thinking about the, like the structure of saying I'm wrong because even if you know you or you and I, uh, I think I'll be able to speak for you and say that in this situation of like neither of us think we're the most brilliant person on earth. We we understand that we can be wrong very easily, but when it comes down to it, and someone says, "Thomas, you're wrong," or like that was stupid, by the mind is its own funhouse of tricks and and horrible intentions, right? And the mind says. 
no, this person's attacking us or, you know, it feels threatened. And that, and that, yeah. that's kind of, it's like the whole idea of like separating the mind from who we actually are. Yeah. I mean, the brain is a really elaborate labyrinth to protect us from change and pain and trauma and uh, everything like that. And so hearing that you're wrong means that you might have to change your behavior, maybe change who you are or think differently. And our brains are kind of wired to like not do that. Right. Um, we're wi- we're kind of wired to go with what we know is safe and what works. So to not be that way anymore has to be a proactive effort to read books, listen to podcasts, go to therapy, listen to women when they tell you things, you know, without from, a, not from a place of being defensive. Like, this is probably a, a left turn, but like, for example, when women bring up sexual assault, the, I would say the more common response from men is, well, that's not me. And I don't know anyone like that. Well, you do. Cause you know, statistically like one in three women has been sexually assaulted. So if it's not you, it's multiple of your friends. And so the correct response wouldn't be, that's not me. The correct response is, man, that must be awful for women. What can I do to help you stay safe? How can I help hold my friends accountable? That's the response of someone who isn't guilty of it at all because they're not getting triggered by that, you know? Totally. Yes, absolutely. And I guess to to brainstorm, and I would like to get your feedback on this, like let's say I wanted to hold my friends accountable. You know, is it is it just bringing up, hey, guys, one of three women has been sexually assaulted. Like I'm in a room with 10 dudes. Like that's, let's talk about that. Like what do you know? Have you seen it? Have you prevented it? Have you ever been in a situation where you had to, you had to ask yourself, you know, am I doing the right thing? You know, how, how would you go about rec- recommend going about that for a, for a, a well-intentioned male? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's ever going to, be popular to just be sitting in a room with dudes and just be like, Hey, let's talk about sexual assault. You know, like I don't think that's a realistic thing, but I do think, you know, especially since 2016, 2015, like quote unquote locker room talk, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I think men should hold each other accountable. Like don't talk that way about women. Don't objectify women. Don't go hit on that woman in the bar like that. You're making her feel unsafe. You know, don't, objectify your coworkers. Don't undermine your coworkers when they're putting themselves forward professionally and in a position of power over you. Don't undermine them to try to level the playing field. You know, like I think that women are often always having to be the one to clap back for themselves. And we're just getting encouraged by society more and more and more to normalize doing that. But I put it like, for example, every time a groomsman is hit on me or made me uncomfortable, the other groomsmen have never said, hey, don't do that. You're being rude. You're making home time. We'll treat her like a professional. That's what should have been done. And they're not doing that. They're just like, even if they don't agree with that, with what that guy's doing, would never themselves do it. They're also not correcting it. Right. Which gets into the idea of enabling and being a stand, you know, a standers by, stand, you know, not doing anything is complicitly endorsing it or kind of endorsing the behavior. Yeah. Interesting. So you also have a uh, mentoring or a, um, what's the uh, official verbiage around your, your services? 
So after doing this for 15 years, I decided that I wanted to launch an education brand for photographers. And in theory, I could do mentorship for any sort of creative professional, but a lot of the tools I'm offering are specifically for photographers. So my develop presets, presets, album design templates, um, all my contract templates. Um, and I'm doing, I have a couple different options for mentorship right now, and I've been offering webinars and things like that. So that company is called Endless Summer Collective, and it just represents the bulk of what I've learned up to this point. And uh, a lot of what you talked about, about balancing being a creator versus being a business person versus being a human outside of all that. Um, and so I just set up this brand to help others reach their own specific goals and maybe even bypass some of the things that I've done wrong, you know? Totally. And what would some of those uh, mistakes be or kind of, uh, you know, professional, uh, lessons learned. <laughs> well, I think at the beginning I went into it with a really like stock contract that I didn't realize how many loopholes or how many things weren't mentioned in it. Whereas now my contract is so long and it's not to bind people into something crazy. It's so that for every possible scenario that could come up, everything's outlined the boundaries, the expectations, the game plan, everything's outlined. And that's what's best for both me as a photographer and for the client. Um, I've learned a lot more about how to speak professionally. Um, I've learned a lot about how to structure a wedding day and communicate around it and, um, you know, parse out my tasks for the day. I mean, it's just, it's a lot, you know, and especially after 2020, that was an unprecedented situation and none of us knew how to deal with it. Um, and now if it were to happen again, yes, it'd still be stressful, but I'd have a roadmap of what to do and what not to do. And so that's something I have learned a lot from across the board, as well as it made me really rethink what about this career brings me joy and what can I do to orient my business more towards that instead of just like, what's going to get the most people to book me. Mm. And so I would really like to help photographers along that path of staying true to what they authentically want to do, as opposed to just cranking work out that they don't care about. Awesome. And you have the credibility because you've done that with your own business. So you can, you're not speaking from a theory, you know, it's what you were able to do. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of been at every level of the market with, you know, I just started, please hire me. Anyone who will hire me, I'll take it to, I can be a little bit pickier and I'm saying no to jobs to, okay, I'm being a little bit pickier, but I'm still not quite getting the type of work I want to do. How can I pivot my whole brand message and my content and everything to target specifically exactly what I want to be doing? Nice. How do you go about that? As far as, I guess, as far as identifying the type of client that you want or that, you know, the, the audience you're serving to use like a content creators, uh, verbiage. Um, I, well, obviously I looked at the bulk of negative experiences I had had and drew a straight line through them and figuring out what made them negative mm. and did the same thing for all the positive experiences. And then I thought about what do I enjoy in my life? Okay. I really enjoy travel. I really enjoy opportunities to be creative um, and not where I'm re not really, really difficult situations where I'm having to expend all my creative energy troubleshooting. 
Instead, I'm, I want to be able to expend my creative energy just being creative, you know, at least most of it just being creative. So choosing to take on assignments where I knew I had the time and space and uh, circumstances to feel inspired and act on it. And, you know, I think it just depends on what you want. I personally decided I wanted to be working fewer weddings, more destination work, making being able to charge more per wedding and kind of get back my life a little bit. But if I were trying to be an elopement photographer, I would have a very different strategy. So it's really like a one-to-one conversation I would need to have with the individual creator on what their personal goals are. Right. But it sounds like looking at what makes someone happy day to day and what is their, how do they want to spend their time and then kind of working backwards a little bit and aligning it with their values. Yeah. I mean, the, I've said before, one of my life's missions is to have my words and actions line up with my values as much as possible. Okay. That's great. That's, that's juicy. So talk, talk more about that. How did you, (laughs) how did you get to that? point of kind of verbally consciously you know identifying that honestly i think just growing up you know i we spend a decent part of our life being very reactionary and when we're reactionary are we always acting in line with our values not really you know we're usually flipping out a little bit so my answer to that is uh therapy and my answer to that is taking a serious look at the things of things i've done that didn't serve my like higher purpose, higher joy that weren't walking me down the path I wanted to ultimately end up on. Um, and, you know, just ask myself, okay, why am I doing that? And what can I do differently? Put myself in different situations where it is going to be more natural for me to be myself and not bring out the worst in me. Mm. What, so what is your purpose? therapy experience time? What is my purpose? Honestly, I think my purpose is uh, to do a lot of photojournalism for causes that I care about. Um, And when I realized that I wanted to be doing that, and I've done a little before, uh, I realized that those are usually, you know, not just multi-day, but sometimes multi-week, maybe a month-long assignment. And I can't be shooting 45 weddings a year and doing that. So if I wanted to be able to start doing that, especially if I wanted to do it from a philanthropic standpoint and not really charge much, if anything, to do it, I would need to be charging more for weddings and shooting a lot less. And so that was part of my uh, decision to move more into like a luxury market. Um, But professionally, that's my goal. Energetically, I just want to love and be loved and travel and try to spend as much time in pursuit of joy and self-improvement as possible. Hell yeah. Good for you. That's that's (laughs) inspiring. So thanks. Yeah, for sure. You're very, very self-aware and good at communicating it. So I I thank you. I think this is going to be a good uh, motivator for people. And I was actually thinking about this before we started talking. So this whole self-improvement mindset is a mindset that some choose to, to adopt more of a philosophical question, but do you believe that people have the obligation to adopt a mindset like that and care about other people enough and themselves to, to seek self-improvement? Like, is that, if someone's not doing that, is that inherently a bad thing? 
sometimes they're just not ready. You know, it doesn't mean they'll never do it and they're not a bad person. It just means they're not ready. And that could be because of a lot of different things going on in their life that they can't balance that as well. But on the whole, yeah, I do feel like we need to be focused on being self-aware and improving, especially if our behavior is hurting other people, you know, like I've dated and I've been this person as well. I'm not always a victim, but I've dated plenty of people where they knew their behavior was hurtful, but instead of going to therapy and changing that behavior, they would just change who they're dating. And that doesn't make their problems not a problem. It just makes them someone else's problem, you know? So instead of that being their problem, it's everyone they date's problem because they're the one that have to feel that behavior instead of you. So um, if I had to create a headline for this podcast with you, it would be men go to therapy. <laughs> go to therapy. It's, it's okay. Go to therapy. It's not like they sit there and scold you for being a bad person. They just connect your behaviors with what caused them and then you can move on from them. And you don't have to go forever. You might only have to go for two months. You know, it's not like totally this huge, you know, negative commitment you're making. Totally. And it's so accessible now. There's no reason not to do it. It's more accessible now than ever after 2020. For sure. And even if it's just bibliotherapy, you know, reading or listening, there's, there's so much, there's so many nuggets of wisdom out there. And that's, that's hilarious. I, yes. I'm good. I'm going to title that for the episode for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> yeah. I, I think after kind of observing myself and other men, I, I, the really like ironic thing about the resistance to therapy is that men are comfortable sharing or saying that they are afraid of what's inside. That's like, that's accepted. It's like, Oh, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to do that. What about all this shit I yeah. have carrying around with me? Like, ha 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 ha. It's like, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's actually more cowardly. I would say to see something that's there and not try to acknowledge it or not try to deal with it than just accept. Cowardly is an excellent word to describe that. You know, here they are, men trying to be men, but what they're really being is cowardly, but that needs to be pointed out to them. And they would only realize that if they went to therapy, you know? So it's just kind of a vicious circle or cycle. Um, But yeah, I mean, I went to therapy. I've gone to therapy on and off my whole life. And I definitely went during 2020 and I was definitely confronted with some things that were like, Oh shit. Oh, I don't know. Am I allowed to cuss on this podcast? Um, That were just very heavy, (laughs) (laughs) very heavy. And, a lot to take in and a lot to process, but I'm like, Oh, now I understand why I do those things. And because I understand why I do those things, I am now aware of them and I will, I'm way less likely to do them again. And I'm also less like, I'm not less mad at myself. I'm not telling myself I'm just this bad person. I'm like, Oh, Jenna, you've, you've done those things because of X, Y, and Z that have happened to you. And you learned these traits to try to cope with it. And that coping skill worked for you then, and it's not working anymore. And so it's time for you to change it. So, yeah, you're going to have to look at some stuff, but also then you get to be free from it, you know? Yes. You're spitting fire, my friend. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm speaking from the experience of someone who's done a lot of therapy in their life. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in there. I basically have like a list of like six or seven things that I've identified that I want to either process or unwrap experiences or habits. And yeah, I just go like through work even, and you know, I get like one, one session a month, once a month I go 
chop it up with the guy. Nice. He gives me some to do's, you know? So yeah, like, I mean, it shouldn't go, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. It was like, ideally I would love to be in, you know, every week, but it's a little, it's expensive. So there's that too. It is, it is, but there are more affordable options now than ever. And not everyone needs to go every week. Some mm-hmm. people do just need to tune up every now and then, you know, I haven't gone in a couple months. I'll probably start going again here in a month or so. Sometimes you need some time to like decompress and apply everything you've learned and then come back to it later. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wish men know knew how hot it is to women when they work on themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sure. like if there was a guy that was hitting on me and some other guy came in and saved me from him, that's hot. The attractive level I would have to that guy, I cannot even yeah, tell that's, you. Like, that's red hot. Men, men that are aware, <laughs> yeah, that's red hot. Like all, me and all my friends would be like, "What's your name?" You know, like his, his, he could go from like a three to a nine in like two minutes. You know, it's just it is very. Uh, I have a couple guy friends that are like very proactive in their self help and like self improvement, and yeah, it's sexy for sure. Girls are into it for sure. Do it, yeah. Go to therapy. Can uh, can confirm from from my girlfriend's perspective <laughs> yeah <laughs> hell yeah also jenna we'll, we'll jump over to this new conversation game i have so uh the three things game has been retired for my for my loyal listeners the three things game is on its way out at least for now and now we have this okay. new game it's called spark by seek discomfort and it's a good conversation game so uh would you like to answer first or second jenna if I, would I like to what? answer first or second? Go first or second. Uh, second. Okay. Here's my question. Is there something my parents did that I vow never to do? Yes. Um, the most obvious one is that there was infidelity happening, you know, in, in my parents' marriage and I will never do that. I can comfortably say that. Um, and, but I, on the less dramatic side, I think that my parents were not uh, benefiting from all all this whole th- a lot of stuff we've been talking about, like all this self improvement, you know, self awareness, therapy forward, um, feminism. You know, these things were not as accessible. So I, I I think that perhaps they kind of ran a playbook, you know, and, and um, maybe they didn't have as the opportunity to kind of be more intentional about the life they wanted to live. Maybe, I don't know, just speculating, but that's something I want to make sure I do. And that's totally, you know, a benefit, a privilege of the work they did to put me here. So yeah, that's what I say. Okay. Here's yours. Okay. So do I owe anyone an apology? Yes. (laughs) Although I would say that I am pretty good about apologizing. It's not always right in that second when I'm heated, but I'm so hard on myself that when I do something wrong, I tell you, like, I'm not going to let myself off the hook for it for sometimes years, you know? So I'm pretty good at apologizing. I'm pretty good at, if someone apologizes to me, I'm pretty good at forgiving. But if you don't apologize to me, I'm going to believe the the anxious part of me is going to believe that you're going to do it again. So I'm not going to let you off the hook until you apologize to me. But yeah, I mean, 
I'm sure I owe many apologies. I'm not even aware of. I'm very imperfect. <laughs> for sure. Can I can I answer question number one too? Yeah, for sure. My answer to what my parents, what I want to make sure I never do that my parents did is have children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do it. You can't make me do it. Cool. What's the uh, what's the um, feeling and rationale behind that? I've just never in my life wanted children. And I think they're a luxury of a different generation. You know, they're a luxury of a generation that came into a better economy and didn't have to pay student debt till they die Mm -hmm. and could buy a home for $150,000 and a pre-internet world where you weren't looking at photos of far off places all the time that you could go visit, but would be harder to visit if you had a baby. So I think this is a time where you should only have kids if you really, really want them. Like my sister has always wanted kids. I'm so glad she had kids and they tried really hard to have them. Um, But for me, it's just, I can think of other things I'd rather spend my money on. (laughs) If, if If I don't have that like primal calling to bring a child in this world, I'd rather have like eight dogs. (laughs) <laughs> for sure yeah i mean great great points i i think that the world has changed so much as far as i mean one even just from a population perspective you know yeah. there's plenty of people you know we don't need more people <laughs> we don't need more people we don't yeah fascinating how has that gone as far as has it been hard to find people from a partner perspective, like finding a partner is, is is it easy enough to find someone who is also like sure they don't want kids or, or is it kind of more of a, a bit of a search? Well, I'm single, but I don't think I've, I've probably only dated one person that like really wanted to have kids. So no, I don't think it's hard. I think we're all just like looking at our bank accounts. Yeah and looking at how tough it was for our parents to raise children and watching maybe some of our friends have kids and realizing how much it takes their life away. And we're all thinking long and hard about that decision. I've even, I've dated multiple people who teach elementary school, love kids, but still just don't want to have their own. Mm. Yeah. Super fair. Actually, we, yeah, I've been having that conversation recently too, because it's a good one to have. And it's, it's certainly not something speaking of like intentionality, you know, not rushing into without really thinking about it and making sure it's the right, the right fit. <laughs> yeah. I'm at my age. I don't think I really have to tell anyone I don't want kids anymore. Cause I'm kind of like past my, my reproductive prime at this point. So it's a conversation. I don't think it's a vetting conversation I need to really have at this point, but I just like, don't want to be taking a child to Morocco, but I do want to go to Morocco. For you sure. Know? Hell yeah. <laughs> Awesome, Janet. Well, thank you so much for your, uh, I would say, clear uh, sharing and communication and being really honest about some of your experiences you've had and kind of packaging it into lessons learned for the men in my audience specifically, but for anyone listening, I think I think they'll find it beneficial. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure. As far as uh, your... Uh, mentoring business for photographers if there's anyone who wants to check it out where, where should they go endless hyphen summer hyper collective endless summer collective 
Um, but if you Google Jenna Noel Photography or Jenna Noel Creative, it's going to pop right up. So okay. if you go to jennanoelcreative.com, you'll see three different tracks you can pick, and that's going to be one of them. Perfect. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Good luck with everything you have going on. And yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Thank you.